Hey, this is Randy Robinson, and I'm the pastor of Everyday Church. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this podcast encourages you, stretches your faith, and helps lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Let's do it. Well, for the last several weeks, we've been in a series called Jesus Above All. And I hope that you've been deeply challenged to evaluate your relationship with Jesus. That you're asking the question, is he truly above all? And as we said multiple times the past few weeks, if we don't get this Jesus above all thing right, then nothing else will be right. What we believe about Jesus and how we respond to that belief is the single most important decision of our lives. Today, I want to turn our attention to a very popular passage of Scripture found in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. And it's the story of a widow whose husband uh, had left her in significant debt when he passed away. And now she's at the end of her rope as all of her husband's creditors or her husband's creditor has come to take her sons as slaves in order to fulfill the debt that he owed. 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read this. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. And Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. And Elisha said, Go around and ask all of your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons, pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled up, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there was not a jar left, and then the oil stopped flowing. And she went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. As I was reading through this passage this week, a few things stood out to me, and some of these may seem very overly simplistic. But I think they will serve as a reminder that even in desperate situations, God is still our provider. So here we have a lady who has lost her husband and is now in danger of losing her two sons. And the first thing she does is seek a word from the Lord. So in the Old Testament, the reason someone would approach a prophet would be to seek divine guidance or communication from God through a chosen intermediary. Prophets were individuals called by God to deliver his message, his guidance and warnings through the people of Israel. And so when people approached a prophet, they were seeking to hear God's will or receive insights into God's plan. So Elisha was the prophet. He spoke on behalf of God. And so rather than trying to figure out what to do on her own, she went directly to the source to receive a word from the Lord. And again, I know this may be a simplistic point, but how many of us bypass the word of God altogether when we have a need? There's nothing wrong with seeking counsel. In fact, Solomon, the ancient king of Israel, who was credited as being the wisest man who ever lived, once said there's safety in a multitude of counselors. But speaking of Jesus above all, I think we're often too quick to seek the counsel of others and not the counsel of Jesus. 
I mean, what's the first thing you, you do when you receive news, good or bad? Right? Who's the first person that you call or text? Right? If you're like me, you probably have a running list of people that you can call on when and if certain situations arise. I mean, when there's something strange in the neighborhood, who are you going to call? <laughs> I wasn't sure that was going to go, but it did. Thank you. <laughs> this widow had no choice but to seek the word of the Lord through the prophet. But we're living in a different era. First of all, we have the written word of God that we can go to for peace and comfort and direction. And if we're not spending time reading, meditating, and digesting the, digesting the written word of God, there's a good chance that we'll struggle spiritually and emotionally. When I say good chance, that's really hyperbole, because without God's written word, we will be drastically malnourished spiritually. Secondly, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we now have direct access to our Heavenly Father. Paul, the great first century missionary, said it this way to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there was one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. We no longer have to go through a prophet to receive a word from God. Because of Jesus, we now have an open door policy. And so this widow, this mother, she sought a word from God. Now, verse 2. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Her response to the question from the prophet is an indicator of what's going on inside of her heart. She had very little, and what she did have, she viewed as insignificant. I don't have anything at all. Well, just except this small jar of olive oil. But I don't have anything that can help this situation. There's a lot we can discuss in this verse. Oil in Scripture is extremely significant, not only in its practical uses, but also in its prophetic symbolism. In the New Testament, Jesus talked about the oil in the story we call the Good Samaritan. Luke, the doctor who turned Jesus' follower, recounts Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Again, another very popular passage of Scripture. Verse 30, he says, In reply, Jesus said, A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wound. Watch this pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And so oil was used for soothing and for healing the healing of wounds. Oil was also a symbol of hospitality. Offering oil to anoint a guest's head was a sign of respect. Oil was used for light. Lamps would require oil to, in order to burn. So no oil, no light. Oil was often used as a fragrance. Spices could be added. It was a representation of our worship to the Lord. It's a fragrant offering. I mean, that's what's happening in this atmosphere. When we, when we begin to sing, it's a, it's a fragrant offering to the Lord. We're giving Him our worship. 
In an Old Testament context, oil was poured or smeared on an individual as a symbol of consecration. Kings and priests and prophets were all anointed with oil. Elisha himself had been anointed with oil by his predecessor, Elijah. You can read about that in 1 Kings 19. Oil was a symbol of abundance and prosperity and blessing. But in this case, the widow and the mother, she didn't perceive the oil as prosperity. She viewed it as not enough. And so when she responds with, I don't have anything in my house at all, just this small jar of olive oil. This is a gross devaluing of what she actually had. And I can't help but wonder if Elisha was thinking to himself, what do you mean all you have is a little jar of oil? Because a little bit of oil is all you need. This lady didn't realize it yet, but she already had everything that she needed to bring her out of her situation. And I wonder how many of us are looking at our circumstances and what we have and we're saying, I don't have enough. I don't have enough education. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough self-control. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough patience. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough experience. We're often just like this woman, always focusing on what we don't have, always comparing what we have with what others have. Our family is a single car family right now. So we spend a lot of time running each other back and forth and to and fro and balancing schedules and appointments and meetings and all the things. I mean, before either of us books some kind of appointment or meeting, we have to consolidate calendars and check eight million different scenarios. Who's picking up Emmett? Who's picking up Bennett? I need to be here. Well, I need to be there. I could focus. You know what I mean? Like, this is crazy thing. I can focus on what we don't have, but almost every morning when I walk by our 2016 Honda Pilot with 113,000 miles, I thank God for it. I thank Him that I have a reliable car. I find myself in situations when I want to complain thinking about those who don't have a car at all. So I'm balancing inconvenience while some people have nothing. So I try to be grateful. And I, look, I understand it's easy to get into the woe is me mindset. Anybody else struggle with that? Just, it's like one, you're one banana peel away down. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I'm no better than anyone else. If I'm not careful, I can easily slip into a grumbling, complaining, whining, crying, griping, nitpicking, belly aching, self-loathing abyss. But I hear the word of the Lord asking me, what do you have? Because what you have is enough. Maybe it would be more accurate to say what you have has the potential to be enough. Back to verse two, Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have? Your servant has nothing there at all, just a small jar of olive oil. And Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Essentially, Elisha is saying to her, the problem is not what you have. The problem is your capacity. You don't have enough capacity to contain all that God wants to do in your life. And when we hear things like that in our American culture, we often immediately think about money, wealth, prosperity and stuff. And I'm not saying that God won't, don't or doesn't want to pour out financial blessings on his people. But there's something bigger at play here. And part of the reason that we don't walk in greater anointing in our lives is that we're selfish and our capacity is too small. We're out here asking God to fill us up. Not only do we need to empty ourselves of ourselves and make room for God, as we've been talking about for the last several weeks, but we need to enlarge our capacity to be able to receive all that God wants to pour out. 
What God has in store for us as followers of Jesus far surpasses our wildest imagination. Let's look at a prayer that Apostle Paul prayed for the Gentile believers. That's, that's us. If you're a believer in Christ and you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile believer. This was from a letter that he wrote to first century Christians in Ephesus. Let's start with the most famous verse of this prayer, and then we'll work our way backwards. Uh, many of you can probably, probably quote it. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Man, we love to quote this verse. We love to pray it as a prayer. We love to claim it as a promise. And unfortunately, we almost always quote this out of context. Again, I'm not saying that God can't, won't, or don't bless us materially beyond all we can imagine. I think as a principle, He certainly can and often does. We know that He is the God of more than enough. We sing about it and talk about it all the time. But I'm saying that material blessing is not the context of this verse. So let's go back to the beginning of the prayer. In verse 14, Paul writes this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul prays that we would have the capacity to understand how wide and long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Christ's love is so incredibly vast that we don't have the capacity to understand it in and of ourselves. He's saying it's impossible for us to fathom it on our own. But God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. One version says exceedingly, abundantly, more or above all that we could ask or think. What God wants to do is pour into us something that's impossible to get on our own. The knowledge and the strength and the capacity to receive and to understand how great God's love really is. Paul is letting us know that what is impossible on our own is not impossible with God. Now, let's go back to 2 Kings. And maybe you're wondering how Paul's letter in the first century is related to enlarging our capacity for more of God or more of the anointing in our lives. I'm trying to get our spiritual eyes opened to see beyond our natural eyes. Enlarging our capacity for more of God's presence isn't about material things. Remember last week I quoted a mentor of mine when he says, the reward for following Jesus is Jesus. Amen. Elisha told the woman, go and borrow as many empty vessels as you can. As many as you can find and not just a few. See, one of the ways that we enlarge our capacity for more of the anointing or more of the presence of God in our lives is by finding empty vessels to pour into. 
And if we're honest, it's not a difficult thing to find someone whose life is empty. I mean, the issue is we're often too focused on our little bit of oil and what we don't have to realize that the little bit we do have is not only enough for us, but it's exactly what someone else needs. And so rather than give away what we have and therefore enlarge our capacity, we hold tightly to the little that we do have and we limit our potential for growth. Let's continue. Verse four, he says, then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and she shut the door behind her and her sons and they brought the jars to her and, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. And then the oil stopped flowing. Let me work backwards here for a second. To piggyback on the point that I was just making, some of you in the room have lost your spiritual edge, so to speak. You feel empty, but not in a good way. I mean, we've been talking about emptying ourselves, but you're just feeling completely dry and empty. You need oil in your life. But the oil has stopped flowing. And I think that if you'll take an inventory of your life, you'll find that you're not pouring what you do have into anyone else. Because the oil in your life, it, it's, it's become stagnant because there's no movement. There's no flow. It's like stagnant water just gathering. God wants us to pour out, even when it feels like it's so little, pour out what you have into someone else who's empty and hurting. Verse four, then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons, pour oil into the jars and as each is filled, put it to the side. And she left him and she shut the door behind her and her sons and they brought the jar to her and she just kept pouring. I want you to notice that the miracle happened behind closed doors. She and her sons went inside and closed the door. And I believe that this is a prophetic nod to the words that Jesus would speak 800 plus years later. Let's read his words in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, I mean about chapter 6, verse 5. He says this, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. You ever been around people like this? Oh, so annoying. <laughs> they just love to be seen. Right. They come into church with guns blazing. Look what I can do. I did this and I can do that and I can do this and I'm so good at this. What it's whatever they can do to be seen, whatever they can be doing to be perceived as spiritual in the eyes of others. And Jesus says, don't do that. It's not for me. I'm telling you, don't do it because it's annoying. But Jesus said, don't do it. <laughs> so if my word's not enough, take the words of Jesus. Don't. Verse six. But when you pray, go into your room. Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, those of us that have struggled with wanting to be seen, or those of you that are struggling with wanting to be seen, that's your reward. Those of us, oh, you pray so good. I love to hear you pray. You ever said that to somebody? Or you ever been around somebody who's praying and you feel like you can't pray as good as they can? Is it? No, nobody else deals with that. People come to the mic and they're like, bah, Heavenly Father, God, and they're saying all these things and words you don't even know what they mean. You're having to Google their prayer. <laughs> and I'm not saying that's wrong, right? There's some people have an anointing just to step in and poof, when they begin to speak, the anointing of God just begins to flow. But there's some people who just want to be seen. Right? Look at me, look at me, look at me. 
And if that's you in your life and you've struggled with that, then that's all the reward you're going to get is somebody going, oh, that was so good. But Jesus says, when you pray, go to your room, close the door and pray to your father who's unseen. And then listen, your father who sees what's done in secret, he will reward you. I don't know about you, but I'd rather have that. I think that this, that this is the most significant point of, of, of the entire message. The woman going behind closed doors with her sons is a foreshadowing of the instructions that Jesus would give us later about prayer. And when we look at this passage about the widow with that in mind, we can infer that enlarging our capacity and the miracles that follow are a product of our private prayer life. That's a good place for an amen. But it feels more like a kick in the gut. Because if you're anything like me, and maybe you've been in the church for years. I mean, my whole life, I was born, you know, I might have been born actually in church. I don't know. But I certainly spent all of my life, 47 years in church. I've heard the sermons. We've done all the things, all, all, all the things. And there have been moments that my prayer life was deeper. You know, it ebbs and flows. I mean, everybody, I think, experiences that. I don't want to say that there's no prayer life whatsoever. But I don't know about you, but there have been times when I've struggled. Like, I, I, don't, I mean, have you ever gone just days and days or weeks and not prayed at all? Nobody? You guys are too spiritual for me. There have been moments in my life over my 47 years where I have not prayed at all. I get the news, I get the bad news, and, and I'm kind of, Katie calls me impulsive. I'm sort of that way. Like when I get news, I'm immediately thinking about who has the resources or the knowledge to help me navigate decisions that I have to make, especially in regards to church life and things like that. When something happens, I got a list and I'm like, I'm calling Pastor Rod. You guys met some of you met him a couple years ago or I'm calling this person. or I'm texting this guy. Hey, what would you do about this? Or I'm texting uh, the folks at Meadowbrook. Hey, what about this? How do you navigate this? And Katie's like, you're too impulsive. Just relax a second and ask the Lord what to do. So we can infer that enlarging our capacity and the miracles that follow are a product of our private prayer life. And they brought her empty jar after empty jar, and she just kept pouring and pouring and pouring. Now, I'm careful when I make statements like God said. Some people throw around those words too flippantly. I try to use them with caution, understanding that I'm human. My own thoughts, desires, pride, and selfishness often cloud my ability to clearly hear the voice of the Lord. And so personally, when I feel a prompting of the Lord, I feel like something inside. I have a thought that comes to my mind to speak to someone, and I feel like it's God wanting to say something to them. I might say something like, I feel like God wants to say, or God might be saying, and I'll release that, and I'll let them kind of discern whether that's from the Lord or not. Now, I could be wrong. But I feel a stirring in my heart for us as a church, but also for us as individuals and families. I feel like God is saying to us that it's time to enlarge your capacity. Amen. Now, I've tried to make it abundantly clear in this message that I'm not talking about monetary prosperity, although that certainly could be and hopefully is a part of it. I'm talking about enlarging our capacity for him. Enlarging our capacity for Jesus. We sing about Jesus so much today. I mean, we should sing about him every Sunday. But according to the primary passage that we read today, enlarging our capacity will come first behind closed doors. 
It will come as we begin to cry out to God with a renewed commitment and a renewed passion for prayer. And Jesus gives us a promise. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I want to push on you and I want to pull on you to get out of your comfort zone in regards to prayer. Jesus said, and I quoted this a little while ago, that his house would be called a house of prayer. But beyond what we do here corporately together, I want you to commit to finding a quiet place behind closed doors to begin talking to Jesus. We spent a lot of time in staff meeting this past Tuesday, just talking or Thursday, talking about what that looks like in our lives. Confessing our own struggles at times of not staying in a, a constant season of prayer. But I'm telling you that if we will respond to the words of Elisha and go behind closed doors and we'll begin to pour out ourselves what little bit of oil we have, we pour it out to the Lord and we find others to begin to pour into, he will enlarge our capacity. He will enlarge our capacity for him. He'll do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think from Ephesians 3.20, but it will be in regards to understanding how deep and how wide and how long and how great is Christ's love. God, please help me understand your love for me and what you've done for me and the sacrifice that you gave on the cross when you gave your life. God, help me to grasp. I can't do it on my own, but you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all I could ask or think. And so, God, I ask you to enlarge my capacity to understand how great your love is, to enlarge my capacity for the anointing. To enlarge my, and if you're, if you're like, what's the anointing? What does that even mean? Like the anointing of God, I guess a quick, simple definition would be the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do a task that he's called you to do. Like you could go and try to do things on your own and that's fine, right? God's enabled us to do things like that, right? But I'd much rather step into the anointing and the power of God to do the task. Scripture says it's the anointing of God that breaks the yoke of bondage. So we can get up here and sing every day or every Sunday or whenever we're here and we can worship and we can sing songs like Chains Fall and Fear Bow and all the things. And we can sing that in our own power and nothing happens. Or we can step into the anointing of God, which breaks the yoke of bondage. And when we sing underneath the anointing, people's lives are changed. Little boys like Walter encountered Jesus. And big boys like Tim encounter Jesus. And I've said many times from this platform, that this whole church planting journey looks different than I thought it would. Coming from youth pastor world and teenagers and all the... All of that craziness. We were in a season of revival at the youth group that I was the youth pastor of. And it felt like, and if you've ever been to church camp, that's what Wednesday night youth group felt like. 50, 60, 70 kids, 80 kids just, just seeking God. And, and I thought that I thought that I would we would plant this church and that's what it would look like, but it hasn't looked like that. 
it's looked like a few years ago, those of you that are, that are long-term guys, we did a, a Shark Week mini-series during Shark Week. I have no idea what I talked about, but I remember the series, and I remember a young lady sitting in the back, and I didn't even know until weeks later, but at the end of the message, she didn't come front up front. She didn't tell anybody. She didn't pray some prayer with people doing all the things like I had experienced in youth ministry. She just said, I felt overwhelmed that I needed to surrender my life to Christ. And she sat in her seat and did just that. What was that? That was the anointing. It didn't look like I thought it would look. It was stepping into the empowerment. And so that's what the anointing is. And so what I'm saying, enlarge our capacity for the anointing. I'm saying enlarge our capacity to do what God's called us to do. Which is to pour into others, other empty vessels. So Jesus said his house would be called a house of prayer. And God's been taking me on a prayer journey the last several months. And I'm going to be pushing on us and pulling on us to pray more corporately. But I'm inviting you and asking you to find moments in your day to privately pray, to go behind closed doors just like this woman and pour out your heart to the Lord. It's in the quiet place that your capacity for him will be enlarged. It's in the quiet place that miracles happen as we pour out what little oil we have. I listened to a podcast this week and the guy was talking about fitness and all kinds of things and but in regards to his fitness journey, he'd lost 80 pounds or whatever. And he's just like, you know, whatever. He said that this, he said how it started for him, and he's a well-known pastor, was with the decision. And the decision led to discipline and the discipline led to desire. And I don't know if any of you have ever worked out physically or you've been in a, in a season of prayer or whatever. Like you start something, you're like, okay, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to do this. You don't want to do it. You're just going to do it because you need to. I'm going to start running. I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to start the gym, whatever the thing is, right? I mean, that's what they were talking about initially. And so you make this decision and then you go and you do it and you hate it. And you do it again and you do it again and you still hate it and you do it again. And if you're like me, you still hate it. So that decision becomes a discipline. So you're doing it over and over and over again. And then somewhere along that line in that discipline of just doing it, all of a sudden you don't hate it, you love it. All of a sudden you don't, now it's like, oh man, I didn't get to go to the gym today. You're figuring out ways, you're rearranging your schedule, you're trying to do things to get into that place. And I'm telling you that the same thing will happen to you in your prayer life. I'm saying make a decision. You may not even want to do it. I get it. I get it. I've been through those seasons of like, I don't really want to pray. I get it. But make a decision to do it. Set an appointment. Put it on your phone. Have the alarm go off. Write it on your calendar. Whatever that looks like for you. And find that moment to do it. So make the decision and then let it become a discipline. And it might take weeks or even months. But at some point, I'm telling you, that it's going to switch and it's going to go from uh, to God. I just want to be in your presence, whatever that looks like, wherever it is. And you'll find yourself all of the time. Paul said, pray without ceasing. You'll find yourselves in moments where you're just crying out to the Lord. In, other mo in, in moments when you normally would have been 
angry or losing your temper or, or frustrated and all of the things. I'm telling you that that prayer life behind the closed doors enlarges your capacity for the anointing. It enlarges your capacity for Jesus. And nothing else matters. Jesus has to be above all. I'm going to make a call for those who need a touch from God. I'm going to make a call for those who have walked away from their faith and those who have maybe never had faith at all but would like to begin that journey today. We've talked about this from start to finish in the music and all of the things, right? We've already talked about it. And you know where you are on your journey. So I'm going to invite you to come up. On behalf of Pastor Randy and the entire staff at Everyday Church, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. For more information on the church, please visit us at everydaychurch.xyz.